Christ is risen. I do that because in um, church growing up, our church always did that. And the church growing up, Yvonne's church never did it. So she's trying to figure out what's a strange thing that, that people do. Uh, we could add some more rituals to that as well, but maybe that's for another day. Boy, we're, we're welcome to have you today. If you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to uh, fill out a visitor registration card in your pew. Drop it in the, the back offering plate. Just love to greet you. Um, you know, since September, last fall, we've been working our way through the book of Philippians. And uh, every week, with one exception, when I came back from a missions trip to India, uh, I have just taken the next text in Philippians. So I'm not sure if that's some kind of record, but like I, we're up to like almost 30 messages here on Philippians. We've been savoring it going through. And even through the Christmas season, by God's providence, when we were in in Christmas, we were in Philippians chapter 2, talking about the incarnation of Jesus, the, the humbling of Christ, taking the form of a, of a bondservant. And so we just continued right on through Philippians chapter 2. And this resurrection morning, when everyone's mind's on the resurrection, by God's providence again, we have a text which we can use to open up the resurrection with as well. And that's what I want to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 4. And this morning we're going to use one verse, this morning sort of going to be preaching on it, more preaching application on it. We're going to look at that verse and then really launch from there and you'll, you'll see what I, I mean here in a, a little bit. But this verse simply reads, just like as the, the children wrote, they're saying, it said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let's say it together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Say it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is one of those exhaustive um, commands in all the Scripture, exhaustive in application. Because when he says rejoice always, that, there, there's no time when that doesn't fit. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. It sounds a little bit like First uh, Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. I mean, we're, we're rejoicing always. We're always praying, never stopping. And in all things, we're giving thanks. And it matters not what the circumstances in your life are today. Whether things are going well for you or things are not going well. The call of God upon your life is still to be a, a thankful, joyful prayerful person. Now, there are times when this is easy. You must confess when you're experiencing the, the kind blessing of God upon your life and things are going your way, it is easy to exalt and rejoice in the Lord always. But there are other times where it's difficult, right? Maybe when the circumstances of your life have turned against you, maybe when you're facing that frowning providence of God in your life, when you're facing some difficult trial, the call still remains. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Even in trials, you're called to rejoice. That's what James says. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. In other words, even when the trials come, God calls us to be joyful. Now, it's not that we should be joyful in the trial itself, but we can be joyful knowing that the trial will produce some things in our life. 
James finishes the thought like this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that none of you, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, you can consider the trial that has come into your life as a blessing because you know at the end of it what you're going to be like. That the trial is going to bring you through to be like that. And that's always a testimony of God's people. It's always, it's always through the trials where they walk most deeply and dependently upon the Lord. And at the end of the trial, they remember what it was that they went through and can rejoice in light of the end. So we can rejoice in the Lord always, even when the trials come. Now, that's not to say that we should put on a fake church smile. Right when we come to church and just like how are things? Oh, they're wonderful. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And, you know, when you're at home, you're like, it doesn't it doesn't mean that. Or maybe sometime when you're facing sorrow and sadness and tears and pain in your life, maybe a, a loved one dies or severely injured, maybe breaks a neck or back or is looking at paralysis. Or maybe when a loved one is diagnosed with cancer or some other life threatening disease or or some other catastrophe comes when the house burns down or your children go astray or your hopes are dashed. There's appropriate place for Christians to weep. As Ecclesiastes 3 says, there's a point in time for everything, right? A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And, and we can weep at those times. We can feel the loss. I mean, we are in the flesh and we do face hopes and disappointments but through it all, still we are called to rejoice. So how is it that we can weep and yet rejoice? How is it that we can mourn and yet rejoice? Well, consider what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. After listing in chapter 4 and in chapter 6, all these trials that he has gone through, his hardships and his affliction, he says this, that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Even Paul said, you can hold those two things together at the same time, to be sorrowful at, at the, the difficulties that come upon your life and yet always rejoicing. And, and I, I think what, what he's talking about there is that, yes, the sorrow is there, but, but behind that and underneath that and girding it is a genuine rejoicing and trusting in the Lord. If, if you notice, even Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord. And, and as the Lord never changes, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the Lord never changes, there's no reason not ever to rejoice in the Lord. Your circumstance will change, but if you see beyond the circumstances, you can be sorrowful, but always rejoicing at the same time. Sorrowful at the circumstances, but rejoicing in the Lord. Now, this morning's message is not going to focus upon those hard times, the bad times. Although the Bible has a lot to say about that. And I'd love to open that up, but that falls under the scope of a, another day. But this day, we're going to focus on one thing. Really, it's basically, it's an application of this text. This text says, rejoice in the Lord always, and we can, anything we pick about, we can, we can kind of preach from this text. But we're going to pick the one thing. And kids, what's the thing we're going to pick about today? We're going to talk about today? Yes, what is it? Easter, that's right. Good job, Nathan, right? Good job. Yeah, Easter, the resurrection. And so my message this morning is entitled Rejoicing in the Resurrection. And so what I want to do this morning is, is just open up some passages. And this is what I did this week. I just looked through the Bible, looked where it talked about resurrection, and saw places where it tied the resurrection in with joy. 
Now, there's lots of passages that can come by implication, but I looked at explicit places where it mentions the resurrection and joy or rejoicing and somehow tied to the resurrection, I believe. And so rather than focusing and just staying right here in Philippians chapter four, verse four, we're going to launch this morning to give you reasons why you can rejoice in the resurrection or how it is that we do rejoice in the resurrection. My, my first text here, we're going to look at four of them. I have four points in my message this morning. First is Matthew 28. Let's turn there. If you're in your pew Bible, it's in the New Testament, page 25. That is near the end of the Bible. Page 25. This is the account, Matthew 28, of the women coming to the tomb and finding it empty. A little bit different than what um, Phil read for us today but still describing the same account from a different perspective. Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning. And his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he has said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Verse 8, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And you see that emotion right there in verse 8, right? They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Now, fear and joy together, and I think we can understand what's going on in their minds we can understand these emotions. I mean, these, these women were, were with the few who buried Jesus. If you look back in chapter 27 and verse 59, it describes the burial of Jesus. 59, it says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And here it is. Mary was there. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So in other words, when Jesus was actually being put into the grave and when that stone was being rolled over, these Marys were sitting there watching these things take place. A little bit like a burial scene when you are around the casket and there's there's the, the tent that's over everybody and the final words are said. There's maybe 20 of you around as you think about burying your loved one and you watch that casket be lowered into the grave and maybe you throw a little bit of dirt onto it. They were in that crowd watching and seeing where they were were buried. They saw that stone rolled in front of the tomb and they spent the Sabbath at home. But then first thing in the morning, as soon as it began to dawn, right? This is verse 28, chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, that is at the first glimmer of light. They may have had torches or may have needed torches to see the light on the way because it was still dark. The birds were chirping at that time and they came to the tomb. And, and Mark and, and, and other gospel, I think it's Mark, Matt, Luke and, and uh, John tell us that they came to anoint the body of Jesus. 
I mean, that was the typical practice, the Jews in those days. They, they took the body, wrapped it up, and put it in a, basically a cave, rolled the stone over so animals aren't going to get at it, and then let the, let the body decay for a year. Then after a year, they'd come back and pick up the bones, put them in an ossuary, a, a box that's as long as your femur and as wide as your skull and as high as whatever it takes, about this big, and then they'd bury that. And that's how you would be buried in because the bodies stink when they decay, they put spices on there so it wouldn't stink just wretched there um, in, that, in that cave. So as they came, they came to anoint. They also came to, um, they were thinking about the, the stone being rolled away. In fact, Mark tells us the big discussion on the way is how in the world are we going to remove that stone away? Um, because typically you, you could close the tomb with a stone, but it took more to open it because the stone kind of rolled downhill oftentimes. Because you get several guys, we're going to open this, let's get some effort, we open it up. Closing it was easy, but opening it, so how are we going to open up this stone? And they didn't know how they could move it to anoint the body of Jesus. When they came to the tomb, though, they, they caught what they did not expect. And in fact, that, that even is, is my point here, Matthew 28, rejoicing in the unexpected. They were expecting a, a stone in front of the tomb, they were expecting a body that they were going to anoint, but that's not what they saw. Instead of the stone, they saw... Instead of the body, they saw an empty tomb. And instead of the stone there, they saw it rolled away. It's an open tomb. And then they heard a message from the angel who said that he had indeed risen from the dead. Verse 5, don't be afraid. It's because they were afraid. Maybe they were, they were shaking. I love that picture in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Do you kids notice that? Of the women who were afraid at this angel? I know, Stephanie, you caught it. And I heard you chuckle a little bit. Those women who were like, oh. <clears throat> Talk with an angel like this when you're expecting. It's just the unexpected. What's happening? Do not be afraid. He says, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He fully knew what was happening. He says, He's not here. He is risen just as He said. Come and see the place where He's lying. And then go quickly tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going ahead of you into Galilee where you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. And it's only right then, having seen this angel and having heard that this angel said that he is risen, that there's this hope in you, there's this this joy in you. And we can understand those things. There's fear because of countering an angel and the joy because they were hoping for the best. Just Jesus said he'd rise again and, and everything's stacking up. Now, we haven't seen him yet, but there's great anticipation. There's great joy in the resurrection. It's so like our experience on earth so many times when... When there's, there's something which we're totally not expecting and then it comes with a great blessing and we're just like, wow, that's really nice. So maybe husbands, when you surprise your wife with flowers. Now my wife is really, um, really surprised when I fly, <laughs> surprise her with flowers. But see, that's, that's for the effect, guys. See that, how that works? Or, or, or maybe, right, you have a bonus you weren't expecting from work. $2,000 check that just kind of comes in the mail. You're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that at all. That is wonderful. Or, or maybe you win that scholarship that you really had no idea, that no chance that you thought that you were going to get it. Or, or maybe that Christmas present from your parents that you were like, wow, I had no idea that was coming. Kids, maybe some kind of iPod or some Apple product or some technology or something. Right? You're like, you didn't think that that was even coming and, and it came. Or maybe you have some sort of experience like that that you can relate to. Examples are, are so many. But 
I do want to tell you one, uh, just um, because it illustrates it perfect and to encourage you all as a church body of, of what we've done. Of course, you know that uh, for years, I'm not sure how many trips I've taken, five or six trips to India and Nepal, and we've coordinated things with, uh, with Bob Clinton. Well, Joel, who is the, um, the head of the children's home there in Siliguri, India, had his car stolen um, well, a couple months ago, I think, and um, you didn't have insurance on it. It had just lapsed, and so basically lost their car. And so when you have, I always tell him when I see him, I said, you're so blessed because he has 35 children. And I said, when you have 35 children, a car might help. And uh, so I called Bob Clinton, and uh, we've been talking about it, Darren and Phil and I, talking about maybe we can give to them and help replace the car. And so I, I called Bob, and just, just the assurance lab, I, I just said, you know what, is, do, you, do you need another car there? Is this appropriate? What, what, what about if we as a church would replace the automobile with him? And he said, yes, that would be wonderful, especially as the rainy season comes. He says, uh, because it's so, it's so rainy that a car would be be helpful. In fact, Darren, when, when Darren and I were there, do you remember the story that Joel told about how many kids he sat in that car? Were you there when you were telling that story? Um, they had this car. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a, a seven-seater. And, and they had like 19 kids. I mean, no, there's no law against that in India, right? You just kind of do your thing. No car seats. And it's like 19 kids. They're all kind of... But they took them to school because it was downpouring rain. And uh, a car would just help uh, transport things and, and things of that nature. And so... I said, yeah, Bob, how much is it? And he said, $14,000 would probably do it. And so we, we have money in our missions funds. So we just gave that money. You all gave that money. Thank you for that. And uh, just this past week, he went to India and uh, got my message. Indeed, we're going to do it while he was in Delhi. And then went up to Siliguri where the children's home was. And then um, he, he, he told Joel, Look, let's just go look at cars. Let's just let's just look at cars, you know. I know you need one, and let's just look at one. And so they they took a motorcycle ride to some car dealers to look at these cars. And Joel had no idea what to expect. He had no idea that that Bob he didn't have the money in his pocket, but had no idea that he was ready to purchase an automobile. And so when they found the right car, Bob said, "Let's buy it." So what do you think Joel's reaction was? Well, we got a picture. Of Joel, right there. Now that's not the new car because it takes. You know, they got to ship and order and things like that. But it is what he's going to have: a new 2014 nine-passenger Mahindra Zylo SUV. And Bob Clinton writes, "I think he's happy. <laughs> you think so? It was the unexpected. It was the the joy of like, yeah, we get a we get a car that we had stolen before and." And Bob Clinton wrote, when Tara and the kids heard the news, they praised God as they had been praying for this since the other car was stolen. Well, Joel's expression of joy is a picture of what our expression ought to be of the happiness that we have at the resurrection. A totally unexpected like the women at the tomb. I mean, for, for us, we stand at a disadvantage, right? Because we expect Easter to come. Right? Ash Wednesday, you can just tick it off. We're going to have you know, six Sundays and then it's going to come Easter and yep, Jesus is going to rise again. He rose again last year. He's going to rise again this year and he'll rise again next year. We just, we just know it's going to work. Put yourself in the shoes of these women. When Jesus told them they'd rise again, they didn't understand. They didn't believe. It was sort of cryptic. But He rose. And this huge blessing came upon them. They, they would see their friend again. 
risen from the dead. Everything Jesus said was true and, and they were rejoicing at the unexpected. So as much as you can, church family, just put yourself with those women and rejoice the unexpected. Well, let's look at another passage that ties joy with the resurrection. And this one is Luke 24. I'm not sure if you heard it right there when um, Phil read it. This is page 69 of the New Testament again. Um, This one I'm calling Rejoicing in the Realization. Because here we're going to see the disciples like slowly coming and realizing fully that it's the resurrection happened. Whereas the, 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 the women just kind of hinted, the angel said he is risen. They hadn't seen him and now they're thinking about it. But here we're going to see Jesus among them and they're going to be processing through everything. The resurrection begins to sink into their life. They're really alive. And since Phil read the entire chapter, we're not going to read the entire chapter. The first part is around the empty tomb. The middle part's about the road to Emmaus. And, and we're going to get uh, right here on the last part of the narrative, beginning in verse 36. Because this is where Luke mentions joy with the disciples in light of the resurrection. Verse 36, While they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they had, were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while he still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. There it is right there. They couldn't believe because of their joy and amazement. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And so he took it and ate it before them. And you see the disciples kind of processing this whole thing. They'd heard the report from the women, but some they didn't believe that. Remember, Peter and John already went to the tomb and said, is, is, is it really? Yes, it is empty. And they came back and you can even see their doubt on the road to Emmaus, right? These two guys are talking about and he, You know, we thought that he was going to redeem Israel, but it's been three days and he's not. And then Jesus said, oh, you foolish of heart to believe in all the scriptures. And so here they're they're still talking. It's still like like thinking through their mind. They're still trying to process everything that was happening. And in verse 38 and 39, we see Jesus even trying to put trying to put forth arguments. He's really alive. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts? Look at my hands. And look at my feet, right? He's showing them hands, right? I've got the imprint right there. That was the spike. It goes right in there. And look even at my side in that famous picture of Rembrandt that I put in the children's notes of, of doubting Thomas, just even, even lifting up his side where the sword had pierced him. Is it, is, are you really? Is it really real? Can it really be the case? He says, listen, touch me. I'm flesh and blood, Right? I'm not the Spirit. If I was a Spirit, your hand would go whoosh right through me. But I'm not. It's stopping. I'm flesh and blood. And, and you know, it's, it's almost as if Jesus was saying, Let me, I can eat. You got any fish here? Give me some fish. I'll show you that I can even eat as well. So like He was trying to convince them that He was risen from the dead. And just think about the senses. They saw Him. They, they heard Him. They touched Him. What other senses might there be? You want to smell me? Well, maybe that's why he asked for fish, right? So you can, you can smell me. If you're going to have some fish, maybe it would stink a little bit. I'm not sure. But, but the whole thing is really earthly. 
I mean, this is this is substantive. And in verse 41, we see the joy of the disciples. They still could not believe because of their joy. They were they're so excited that they they almost felt like they were in a, a dreamy state. Like, is this is this really real? Is this really going on? I know this happens to me when I travel to India and Nepal. When I see Joel at the children's home in Siligree, and I'm halfway around the world, I'm like, I see pictures of Joel all the time. I hear from Bob Clinton who talks about it. I, I see the children, children's home. It's almost like it's this travel brochure. And then when you're there, it's like, this is, this is, I'm, I'm like really here. This like really exists. Yep, this is just how I've seen it in pictures. And it's almost like a, like, like these pictures. If I see these children playing, all of a sudden this come to life and these children actually are playing. It's kind of like it's a, it's a dream, it's a different world, it's surreal. And maybe you've had that experience before. Maybe it's some, some brochure where you're going to go take a vacation and you've looked at it and examined it and kind of put your heart... And then all of a sudden you're there and it, it matches up and it's everything that you've just known on the printed page and it comes alive. And so for these disciples as well, it was like Jesus, we know He was dead, but now He's alive and this is... It's like very, very strange what happened to the Israel when they returned home from the Babylon. Psalm 1, from the Babylonian captivity rather. Psalm 126 verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captive ones from Zion, we were like those who dream. Right? When the captive ones came back, they were like, can we really, is this really Jerusalem? Is this really, are, are we really back? And there's like in this dream, he says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. I think that's what the disciples were experiencing here. They're trying to take in this dream world of Jesus. They'd seen Him die on the cross and now He's sitting before them, talking with them and eating fish. And and it was like too much to comprehend. That's why they couldn't believe because they were so amazed and so rejoicing and so joyful. It was just joy and amazement were swirling within them. You ever feel like that when you think about the resurrection? Like, can this, can this really be the case that Jesus rose? Wow, that's... And just, just an amazement comes across your mind. Well, so join the club. It's difficult to understand. Even these... Disciples who could touch and feel and smell Jesus. Well, good news is the disciples finally did get it. Look down at the very last two verses. Actually, the last section there with the ascension, maybe to catch the context. The disciples did get it. And, and He led them out, verse 50, as far as Bethany. He lifted up His hands and blessed them. While I was blessing them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is called the ascension. He ascended up into heaven. And they, after worshiping Him, returned to Jerusalem. Do you see it? With great joy, they're returning to Jerusalem. And they're continually in the temple praising God. By the time Jesus left them, they'd fully got it. Because it says here that they had great joy in verse 52. Now think about the time from the first appearance when Jesus says, hey, you can touch me. Got anything there? He was with them, Luke says in Acts chapter 1, for 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God and making lots of appearances. And so as He was with them, talking to them for 40 days, they became convinced that He indeed was alive and well. And when they, He left them for the final time, they were rejoicing 
because they knew that it was all true. Jesus had died upon the cross for our sins. He had been raised to dead from the dead to show everything was true. And He will come back and establish His kingdom. They were firm and sure in that. And the disciples went from that place with great joy. Being confident that yes, they would never see Jesus again, but that was okay. The Holy Spirit was going to come and they would one day see Jesus again just as He had seen them again. And with great joy, they went out and turned the world upside down with their preaching. And I just say this, if we would grasp fully the resurrection of Christ, we too would go from this place and turn the world upside down with our our preaching and our teaching and our talking. I just say this, have you come to the point where you fully realize the resurrection of Jesus? See, the resurrection of Jesus isn't some point of esoteric philosophy. It's a matter of believing in history. It's a matter of believing the testimony of these trustworthy apostles. Because apostles wouldn't go and preach the resurrection unless they were firmly convinced that Jesus had indeed died and rose again from the dead. A fact to which they were eyewitnesses. And so much of their preaching is just talking about Jesus is alive. We saw Him. We were eyewitnesses. God raised Him from the dead. In fact, that's our next point. We've seen Matthew 28 rejoicing in the unexpected. We've seen Luke 24 rejoicing in the realization of everything. Because I say the more you realize the resurrection, the more joy it's going to give your hearts. You say, how can I have joy in my hearts? I just say this. Pursue an understanding of the resurrection and joy will come into your hearts. Okay, this next one's from Acts chapter 13. Let's move forward some pages to page 103 in your pew Bible if it's there. Acts 13. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I'm calling this Rejoicing in Believing. And here we're going to see some people who never saw the risen Christ, but are more like, like us or where we are. It's a story, Acts 13, one of my favorite in all the Bible, about uh, Paul coming to Pisidian Antioch on his first missionary journey. Now, Pisidian Antioch is kind of right in the heart of modern-day Turkey. And this is the very first time that, that Paul and Barnabas had gone out. And we pick up the story in, um, in verse uh, 14. Acts chapter 13, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down after reading of the law and the prophets. The synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up motioning with his hand. He began to speak. So picture the scene. Sitting in Antioch, gathering the Sabbath. Every Saturday they did that for years and years and years and years. We don't know how long the synagogue was there, but they... Um, they, they gathered there. And this particular Saturday, Saturday, some visitors came into the Sabbath. They're obviously Jewish. They obviously knew what was going on. And the custom of those days is, so if you come to us, if you're a visitor with us, why, we're going to ask you to preach. And so Paul stands up and, and he preaches. Now, we don't have time to read the whole sermon today. Um, we're going to read the second half of it, though, because I want you to catch that. But the first half is basically this. He says that God has been active in the history of Israel. He, he chose our fathers, verse 17. He gave them judges, verse 20. He gave them kings, verse 20 and 21 and 22. And now, verse 26, he's going to say God has continued that activity and continued to give people. In fact, He's given us the Messiah, this Jesus. And here's what He says, verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God to us, catch this, The message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him 
nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, laid him in the tomb. And here's the resurrection. In fact, why don't you just count the number of times that's on your notes, children. Count the number of times the resurrection appears. Verse 30, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, He appeared to those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, to the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. That's everything we talked about in Luke 24, right? He raised Himself to many people. And these are the ones who are eyewitnesses to the people. Verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He, number two, raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that, number three, he, was ra- he raised Him from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has thus spoken in this way from Psalm 16, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He also says in another Psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Therefore, Psalm 16 wasn't speaking about David. But, verse 37, he whom God raised did not undergo decay. It's the fourth time Psalm 16 is speaking about Jesus who would never undergo decay because he was raised from the dead. Therefore, here's the conclusion, the punch. Let it be known to you, brethren, that because of the resurrection from the dead, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you would never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Four times he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. This is the message of salvation, verse 26. This is the good news that is preached, that is the gospel. Verse 38, through him, everyone who believes is forgiven. Paul writes at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, here's the Gospel that I delivered to you. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and then He was raised again according to the Scripture, and then He appeared to a bunch of people. It's the Gospel that, that He was preaching. And that's what Paul was preaching in Acts 13, that Jesus lived a worthy life. He was put to death and died an unjust death, placed in a tomb, but Jesus rose from the dead. And the synagogue was stirred with this message. Maybe never heard of it before. They came in. There's a first missionary journey. The, the gospel's going out. People never heard of this before. It's just, just drifting out. And in verse 42, we see that the people were begging Paul and Barnabas, come and speak these things again the next Sabbath. And so they said, okay. And it's really, think about now what's happening throughout the week. There was this stir, this commotion took place in the synagogue, and, and everyone's kind of talking about what Jesus is talking about, the, what Paul's talking about, the resurrection from the dead, and they're, they're looking, examining Acts 2, or Psalm 2, and Psalm 16, and trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And then Paul comes back into the synagogue the next Sunday, and look 44, the next Sabbath. Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. 
Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you Jews first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And, and, and you can almost picture that, that, that Paul is there and talking about you Jews, right? It's necessary it goes to you first. Because that was apostolic missionary philosophy, methodology. He'd go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Went to the Jews. They rejected it. I think in some sense he probably physically turned to the Gentiles who were sitting over here because Jews and Gentiles wouldn't mix. And he said, we are turning to the Gentiles. 47. For so the Lord has commanded it. I have placed you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here comes this resurrection gospel message. Here comes the joy. Verse 28. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed this was spontaneous rejoicing at hearing and understanding the gospel wasn't for the Jews only, but it came to the Gentiles. Everything about Jesus being raised from the dead and that forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Him was grasped. And what was the response to the resurrection? It was great joy. And the catch who it is who believed. It was the Gentiles whom the Jews despised. In fact... When they came upon the synagogue, verse 44, when the whole city assembled, the Jews were there. They liked their own little club. But the whole city assembled. That means lots of Gentiles came. Is They became jealous and they, they, they hated it and began to resist Paul and the message he preached. I mean, it tells us that the Gentiles were not welcome in the synagogue. They were outcasts. And they're the ones who believed. In fact, if you're visiting with us today, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this message, knowing little about the, the Bible or, or the Gospel, know that, that, that this message, just like to you, it's just, just coming to you fresh and new right here. That Jesus Christ, believe in the resurrection, and, and if you really do believe, your joy will be just like these. When the Gentiles heard this, almost like the moment they heard this, the moment they heard the message was for them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Jesus raised from the dead. Believe in Him and you can be saved, sins forgiven. That can happen to any single one of us here this morning. You believe today and you rejoice. It was right there in verse 48. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, those that God had His hand upon, they believed that day. And today may be a day of salvation for you. As a result, look what happens in verse 49. And the word of the Lord is being spread throughout the whole region because, right, when you come to believe this great message, you cannot help but talk about it with other people. Here's my illustration for this. Just think about something that gives you joy and pleasure. Lots of people in this room, lots of different things. Maybe sports, your sports team, or maybe some television event, or maybe some movie that you like to go and see, or maybe some hobby, some woodworking or crafts or design or something. Maybe, maybe some books that you like to read. Maybe some genre of books. Maybe places you like to go. Uh, maybe certain activities you do with your children. Things that, that really you enjoy. Maybe some animals that are in your house or the addition you're building upon your house. Or maybe some big project or some upcoming wedding in your family or some family gathering. And just, right, when, when, you, when you hit one of those hot buttons, you, you can see it and tell it in people when they, their faces just light up and they start talking about it. And I say this, when you believe in Christ, He will fill your heart with such joy that you cannot help but to speak with others about Jesus. And so, here's really the question. Do you, do you have great joy in believing in the resurrection this morning? 
And you might say, yes. I say, well, are you talking to people about it? So if you're not, maybe that joy is not there. Because when that joy is there, it will come out somehow, some way. Are you talking? Well, one more passage. We've seen Matthew 28, rejoicing in the unexpected like the women in the tomb. We've seen Luke 24, rejoicing at the realization that everything is really true. Acts 13, rejoicing in believing. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, rejoicing in salvation. And, and these, all of these kind of come along a, a continuum. In other words, it was the, the, the women just saw the empty tomb, but they didn't really believe. And then the disciples saw Jesus and touched Him and tasted Him. But by the end of the ministry, they really believed. And then Paul is really preaching about it to people who hadn't heard before. And now in 1 Peter, we see people who are steadfast, established in their faith. It kind of hits all the spectrum. Whether, whether you've never even seen Jesus, just kind of thinking about what the resurrection means, or now you're steady and firm in your faith, there's rejoicing all over the Scripture in this. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's writing um, to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he says in verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, Praise be to God, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. You see the resurrection in verse 3. You see the rejoicing in verse 6. And I believe that they are tied. They're tied together. First of all, the resurrection. Peter praised God for the fact that God caused us to be born again. God worked in our hearts, worked in our life to to change our hearts, to to change from merely an earthly perspective to a a heavenly perspective. We saw that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. We've been born from above. We're no longer earthly, right? We're living for the heavenly reality. And the heavenly reality comes in verse 4, that we might obtain this inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and reserved in heaven for you. It's, a, it's imperishable. The rust and moth is not going to decay this place. It's never going to break. It's, it's uh, imperishable. It's undefiled. <clears throat> it's a holy place sanctified by the blood of Jesus. You won't experience conflict or crimes there. Unfading. This place will never fade. The, the, the luster that it had when you enter will be the same luster that it will have 10,000 years from now. In fact, I would argue maybe it grows more. And that inheritance is guaranteed, verse 5. You're protected by the power of God through faith. God keeps us believing for this salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And it's all hinges on the resurrection right there, right? It's the living hope through the resurrection, right? This hope of heaven we have is through the resurrection. And this hope of, of this secure, permanent place is through the resurrection, is the, the means through which. And what happens here is Christ raised from the dead. He was merely the first fruits. We will follow after. He was raised first and we will follow Him. He was raised in the joys of heaven and we can anticipate a similar raising as well. And then that salvation is so great that even in trials we can rejoice. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. This isn't just rejoicing. This is great rejoicing at what awaits us. Now those to whom Peter wrote were in a a much more difficult place than where we are. When they believed in Jesus, they suffered for it. 
Remember, Christians in the first century had a difficult time as they, they faced opposition from the Jews. Right? We saw that in Acts 13. And then later, even as things came down to the Romans, by A.D. 70, Nero was torching Christians, lighting them with, covering them with tar and, and torching them for his evening parties. Christians were, were facing it. And then Peter is written close to that time when Christianity is facing real difficulties, right? You're mocked, you're ridiculed, you're beaten. Some people had property confiscated. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 10 and chapter 11. And they're facing hard times, but this tremendous hope at the end was, was, was so good that they would endure the difficult things now joyfully. Now sadly, there are many people today who don't approach God that way, basically, it says this: "It says God, I'm in. Whatever happens." So there are many people today who who view God as a as a genie, right? You you know the genie I'm talking about, like Aladdin, where you take that little lamp and and you rub it, and the genie appears and says, "You have three wishes," and so you make your wish, and it comes true. And you see that every time a tragedy comes about, you just wait till next time some shooting or stabbing or some random acts of terror come. This place, this country of ours, is taking God totally out of it. When, when, when things come, what happens? People are crying out to God. There are prayer vigils. There are church services. There are, everything's pointed towards God. Why? It's because they view God as some kind of genie. Well, we got this problem. We need this, we need this wish now, God. Can you help us in some way? Or, or maybe it's even a little bit more subtle, not quite as drastic. When things are, are going well, people forget God. But when things start going bad, they say, oh, something's got to be wrong in my life. I've got I to read the Bible to figure out how I can get my life better. As, as using the Bible to like help make God like a genie so I can make my life better, so I can overcome some of these problems. But, but that's not the perspective when, when you see the resurrection of Christ. It means that everything in this world is smaller than the impact of the resurrection of Jesus. And this hope we have is so grand that we can endure these minor inconveniences along the way. That's why Paul says, I consider the, the present struggles and sufferings of this life to be nothing compared to the glories that is to be revealed to us. John Newton put it really well when he, he gave this illustration. He says this, Suppose a man is going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. He says, what a fool we would think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken! My carriage is broken! He's going to inherit this huge estate and he's complaining about his carriage. He's got to walk. My feet are sore! Oh, my carriage is broken! I can't... I, We'd be like, what are you talking about, dude? You just got to walk a mile. And when you get there, you get this biggest state that you worked not for and that you, you get. Sadly, it's like what many people are who grumble and complain in the circumstance of life. But the resurrection is so much bigger than a, a mile we need to walk. And we ought to rejoice in our salvation because for those of us who have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven, it's far greater and far more valuable than even the most richest estate that anybody here on earth will ever inherit or has. 
And we can easily grumble and complain and blubber at the trials and difficulties we face on the way to that inheritance. But it says we're not, we're not really believing the resurrection because the resurrection established for us this eternal inheritance which imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And I just say this. Are you rejoicing in your salvation that has come about through the resurrection? Rejoicing in salvation. Well, we've looked today at the resurrection and how it's just one, one aspect of this command of Paul to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I would pray this resurrection morning might find us rejoicing in the resurrection. So let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we just long to have a, a proper perspective of Christ risen from the dead. I pray that you would burn it as I've been praying all week long. Burn it into our minds. Burn it onto our hearts. That a dead corpse actually did come alive again. Demonstrated Jesus wasn't crazy, but demonstrated that you indeed accepted his sacrifice and everything he said was true. And Lord, I pray that we would see that and then follow after Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he is our treasure. God, I would pray that we would also follow Jesus, not for what we can get, like these wishes from a genie lamp, but even through the trials of life. God, show the resurrection and the salvation we have in Christ as so big and so grand and so glorious. God, the trials of life appear to be nothing strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So help us to be rejoicing today. I pray as we get together with family, perhaps some of us, maybe with some unbelieving family, I pray that we would speak of the resurrection, what the pastor spoke about our church. God, to those who don't know Christ, and that you would, through my words and the words of others, God, even convert people and show them God, how worthy Christ is, who's been raised from the dead. We thank you, O Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.